great. Perfect. So yeah, thank you so much again um, for joining us today. Um, I really appreciate it and I'm really excited for this discussion. Um, and I thought we could just sort of start by um, like an introduction, sort of your position, your like research interests, some of the projects um, that you're working on and things. Yeah, of course. So um, I am Professor Madhu Krishnan. I'm in the English department at the University of Bristol. Um, I've been there since 2013. I'm currently Professor of African World and Comparative Literatures. Um, and my research interests are primarily around African literary studies and specifically um, literary networks, literary activism, and literary production that is Africa-centered and Africa-based, um, specifically various sites in East and Western Africa, um, in English, French, uh, increasingly other languages as well. Um, I'm currently studying Swahili. Most of my work is really based on co-production, so I work directly with a range of different literary producers and collectives who are based in places like Nairobi, Entebbe, Kampala, um, Yaoundé, Cameroon, Abidjan, Côte d'Ivoire, so on and so forth. Um, and so my, one of my kind of overarching interests then is thinking about kind of decolonial methods and decolonial ethics, specifically in terms of North-South collaborations, but also thinking about kind of Africa-centered knowledge production. Um, so at the moment, I'm working on a project that's funded by a European Research Council starting grant, and it's called Literary Activism in Sub-Saharan Africa, Commons Networks, Commons Publics and Networks of Practice. So that project is looking at um, the idea of literary activism, which we're defining loosely in two ways, one of which would be the opening and creation of platforms and networks for literary production as knowledge production. The other is the kind of intervention into the social and the political through literary practice. And it looks at kind of five case studies in Uganda, Nigeria, Kenya, yet yeah, Uganda, Nigeria, Kenya, Cameroon, and Cote d'Ivoire. So I have a team of um, postdocs and researchers that I work with, but we also work in partnership and co-production with a range of Africa-centered literary collectives like the African Writers Trust, um, Open Arts Foundation, um, uh, Bakwa, Library 1949, so on and so forth. So those are just some of the things I'm working on now. That, that sounds amazing, really interesting, and I think that sort of co-production aspect of it is really important because it's very much sort of a collaborative process isn't it and it's sort of about a range of different perspectives um and so yeah you mentioned sort of decolonizing and how that's sort of one of your key interests I kind of wanted to get what your definition is I guess of it or how you understand um decolonizing um and decolonizing. yeah I think that's such an important question because it's it's not a term with a single definition and I think it's increasingly a kind of contested term um, and I think especially, you know, when we kind of think about the way in which the concept of decolonizing the curriculum especially is getting more and more kind of um, assimilated into kind of institutional structures, um, institutional strategies, you know, metrics, targets, like a lot of tensions arise from that. Um, and so, I mean, decolonizing is a very, it's a very difficult, difficult concept to pin down. But for me, I think one of the key things to think about is how we distinguish it from, say, diversification, right? So I think it's really important 
to distinguish decolonization from EDI, even though they're often conflated. And of course they're related in various ways, but I think that there's often this idea that decolonization is like a tick box activity where, you know, you just kind of like change up your reading list and you've done it. Um, and I think that's really problematic because for me, it's actually an approach to knowledge and an approach to knowledge production. So for me, it's really thinking about decoloniality and coloniality, thinking about, you know, what we admit into our practice as researchers and teachers, as knowledge production, what's excluded from knowledge production, where we see knowledge as being produced, what traditions do we see in that way. So for me, it's really about kind of decentering the false universalization of one type of knowledge to the detriment of others. Um, and I guess one thing like that I always think about is that, um, and it's something I've really taken from, you know, studying decolonial theory is there's no such thing as neutral knowledge. All knowledge is situated. All knowledge comes from a specific time and place. There's just certain types of knowledge that have managed to sort of present themselves as being universal um, to the detriment, as I said before, of other modes of thinking. Um, so yeah, that to me, so decolonization to me is thinking about the kind of radical multiplicity and difference between different epistemological and ontological systems and how we can integrate that into our own conceptions and teaching around knowledge and knowledge production. I think that's really important, that sort of coloniality, decoloniality, and that sort of matrix of sort of knowledge production. Um, really, really interesting. And I think you kind of mentioned it there. I think there was a lot of misconception, misconceptions, I guess, of sort of what decolonizing means and I guess, how do you think we can address these sort of mis misconceptions? I don't know what, how to sort of name I them. I mean, yeah, mis misconceptions isn't quite the word, but I yeah. know what you mean, exactly what you mean. I think it has to be addressed at different levels. I mean, there's so many, I guess, kind of like myths around it. There's so much kind of like discourse around it. And, you know, for example, there's this idea that like decolonization is about cancel culture, which I think is just fundamentally flawed. I mean, first of all, I don't think we have a cancel culture, unfortunately. I think we might live in a better world if we did. But no, we don't have, you know, if you look, for instance, at um, these kinds of accusations around who about people being silenced or like infringement of academic freedom, it's actually by and large people who are working on decolonial projects who become the kind of victims of censorship and oppression. So you could think, for instance, about projects like um, Professor Corin Fowles' Colonial Countryside Project that is located at the University of Leicester. And, you know, she's been the subject of hate mail because of this. You know, she's had articles written about her in like the Telegraph and various places, you know, attacking her character. Um, she's had death threats sent to her. She's had a government minister say, we won't fund projects like this anymore. Like that's the real cancel culture, right? It's not the other thing. So I think that's one really big misconception. And I think it's hard because there are these really strong narratives around, you know, freedom of speech and this, that, and the other. And I think the only way to combat them is just to try to use facts as much as possible to say, you know, if you look, for instance, at this idea of no platforming, it actually almost never happens. And when it does, it tends to be people from the left who are working on anti-racist or decolonial projects. You know, that's the silencing that's happening. So, you know, I think there's that. I think there's this idea that it's as simple as just achieving like say a percentage of BAME authors on your reading list. And of course that's not true. 
So I think, you know, there's this big misconception that it's like something we can have said we did, like we decolonized and now it's done. When of course decolonization is not an endpoint, it's an ongoing process. It's an ongoing, often difficult process of self-reflection. Um, it's a process that's going to be fraught with mistakes and correction and thinking and talking. Um, I think there's also misconceptions around, you know, who or what is leading on it. I think a lot of the really foundational work that's driven decolonization has actually been erased or is in a process of being erased because of the way it's now become part of a kind of prestige industry where, you know, for example, like full professors in the global north might be taking credit now for like their book on decolonization or raising the work of say like black queer trans women who did a lot of work, you know, in, in places like South Africa. Um, I think if we look at where things are being published, that's another thing we need to be considering. So I think there are a lot of issues, but I think the only way to address them is by keeping open spaces for discussion and debate among staff and among students and amongst communities and amongst, you know, different kinds of people um, and reminding ourselves that it's not about us, it's about learning and it's a process and that we will make mistakes, but we need to have that openness to learn from each other and care for each other as we, as we continue down our journeys. Yeah, I think that's really important. And it's, you know, once you sort of reach one goal, you know set another goal you know it's it's it is this continued Definitely. thing it's not yeah like you say it's not a tick spot a tick box kind of process um yeah and yeah and I think you know being forgiving of mistakes and learning from that is is really vital um I kind of just wanted to ask a little bit about sort of a bit, a bit more about your work um and sort of you say about the importance of having sort of these discussions and I think a lot of the work that you're doing at the minute is really allows that to happen and um, so I thought maybe you could talk a little bit about that if that's okay. Yeah sure yeah I mean I'm involved in quite a few projects at the moment um, at the university or should I say quite a few more like collective endeavors um, and again I think that's really important like that we can't do this work as individuals and we can't center our own selves as individuals it has to be collective um, so one thing that um, I'm currently responsible for is I'm the director of the Center for Black Humanities. So I'm the third center director. This is our fourth year of existence. Previous directors were Professor Dorothy Price and Dr. Josie Gill. Um, so we deliberately, when we set up the center, wanted to have a kind of collective organizational structure. We didn't want it to be like, I'm the director and I make the rules. So we've always from the beginning had a kind of management team, we call it, which is very much just anyone who wants to be on it, who's willing to kind of participate and actually share in the labor of running the center is able to do that. And then we have a kind of rotating directorship that's drawn from people you know, in that particular group. So we're a faculty of arts research center. So our, our specific purpose is to be a kind of home at the university, but also nationally and internationally to bring together work on the cultural and intellectual histories of people of African descent of black individuals. Um, so we have a number of different objectives, um, but one of the things that's maybe most relevant for this discussion is we've always been an outward facing research center. We don't consider ourselves to be kind of hermetically sealed within the university. Instead, we work through a range of collaborations and partnerships, which range from with different communities in Bristol to kind of internationally, you know, across different continents and things. And our interest in that is to recognize that a lot of the most important work 
intellectual work in the Black humanities occurs outside of the university. And so we have a lot to learn from that work. Equally, we can bring resources and, and our own perspectives as academics to that work. So, you know, like thinking in terms of it being not like um, something where we go into communities and give them things or we take away, but rather ways to build up like relationships based on exchange and collaboration. So a lot of our members are actually really heavily involved in various initiatives in the city, um, including We Are Bristol, the History Commission, Africa Rights Bristol, Africa Eye, um, you know, various members are on the kind of boards of different local organizations and civic groups. So we try to be, you know, not just stuck up in the university, but actually part of the community. Um, so I think that's one big way in which the work of the center relates to decolonization is specifically trying to center knowledge production outside of the university as essential to the field of black humanities. Um, I'm also a member of the university's anti-racism steering group, which was formed in mid-2020 around the time at which um, the movement for Black Lives and Black Lives Matter had a sort of global resurgence after the murder of George Floyd. And so um, the university's anti-racism steering group, it's an executive level group, so it's quite high up in the university. And I think it's important I'm a big believer in the importance of grassroots and kind of horizontal activism, but I think you do, if you're located in an institution, need to have institutional buy-in. So it's important to have things like the Decolonizing Teaching and Learning Working Group. It's important to have things like the Anti-Racism Steering Group, which show that the university is kind of putting its money where its mouth is and taking it really seriously. Um, so my particular role on that is that group has, we kind of have seven work streams that we focus on, and I'm one of the co-leads for the work stream on anti-racist research and engagement. And it's been really interesting because it's a learning process for me and for my colleagues as much as anything else to kind of learn about, you know, what do we mean when we talk about anti-racist research? What kinds of resources and support can we give to people? You know, we're not just talking about the subject of people's research, but about kind of methods and design. So what best practice is out there? Um, what are people already doing? That's amazing that we can learn from. What are case studies we can think about? Um, how can we make sure that when we talk about research, we don't just mean the university, we mean the broader research community inside and outside. Um, so all of these kinds of things. So I think that there's definitely a kind of important relationship between anti-racist work and decolonizing work. I don't think it's 100% like congruent, like they're not 100% the same things, but I think any genuine decolonization has to be anti-racist. I would also say it has to be anti-patriarchal, it has to be anti-capitalist, you know, it has to be all of these things. Um, but we're equally trying to think a bit on that steering group as well about like ways of coming up with, with a more kind of positive way to talk about what we do. So it's not just anti, anti, anti. Um, a scholar who I have been very kind of influenced by in my own work is an anthropologist of Southern Africa called James Ferguson, who's at Stanford University, I believe. And he wrote this really great book called like The Anti-Politics Machine, where he writes about like, the antis and how like there needs to be a way to present what you're doing, not just against a dominant paradigm, but actually as generative in itself. So I think that's something else to think about. Um, and yeah, so I was also, um, I've been part of the decolonizing teaching and learning working group that professors Leon Tickley and Alvin Birdley lead um, for, for some time now. And so last year, 
we also put together a little future learn course on decolonizing education from theory to practice. Um, and that was a really intense experience, but there was a kind of group of us, uh, a core group from different parts of the university who worked with a broader network of colleagues and students to put all this stuff together. Um, and that is something that's still available. And I think, I think it's had quite a few people engage with it. Um, the first couple of iterations, I was sort of staying in the comments, but I don't now because it's, it would just take over my whole life. <laughs> Yeah, I heard that you did it in four weeks or something, the feature learning. Yeah, it was it was something totally crazy, like four yeah. or five weeks. We put together an entire course. I, I know, I can imagine that was so intense, but also probably such a like an amazing experience, I think, just to have all those discussions sort of yeah. And yeah, it was it was fun. I mean, it was it was good to hear what other people are doing. It was extremely intense, but you know, I think it also showed how because none of us could have done that on our own. So again, it shows how like having yeah. a good collaborative team and not just us, but also the students who worked with us and, you know, the student yeah. groups that worked with us and the professional services and administrative staff that like were our project managers and things. So yeah, because I was, I was going to ask as well, like how, you know, yeah, like we've sort of, we've been saying like decolonizing is this collaborative process. It's about co-production. It's about, you know, working together to sort of, you know, mm -hmm. keep, going with this ongoing process how do you think we can engage sort of a wide range of stakeholders including sort of students and academics and things and I think students are actually relatively easy to engage because I think that for most students like it is something that's on their radar it's something that people have heard of I think you know at Bristol the student union's been really active in promoting stuff there have been different things like for example decolonize space who have been really active in kind of looking at the curriculum in that part of the university. The medical school has had like an amazing amount of like student-led work. Um, so I think with students, it's about making sure that the conversations are just ongoing with staff in a very equal way, because I think, again, it's like those sorts of hierarchies need to be kind of dismantled. Like we need to be working with each other as opposed to an opposition with each other. Um, and I think making sure as well that students aren't overburdened with feeling like they have to be responsible for this, especially BAME students, you know, I don't think it should be like the imperative or responsibility of students to, to have to take the burden on um, and making sure that student time, student knowledge, production and student research is valued. I think that's all really important. Um, you know, I think more widely, it's also about thinking about what I've, I've mentioned this before, but it's, it's just keeping that kind of idea in your mind that the university isn't the sole locus of knowledge production in the city. I mean, first of all, there's another university in the city. So, you know, that's one place to be that in many ways is doing things much better than us because of the kind of historic history of the different universities. Um, but secondly, you know, there's a lot that goes on intellectually, culturally, you know, in terms of kind of innovation, in terms of science in the city. So it's kind of listening to those groups and hearing what they're doing, um, not just so we can reap the benefits, but so we can think about if we're all kind of um, members of a civic community, we should all be working together, right, towards mutual aims. Um, I think with academics, you know, with members of staff, there's kind of two really big issues and neither of them are gonna be vastly surprising, but one is the issue of casualization, which is so many staff are on fixed term contracts or fractional contracts where, you know, they might be very keen to do some of this work, 
but they themselves are actually in precarious positions and have to think about, you know, what are they going to do for their next job? And I think particularly for people on precarious contracts, there can be an element of fear in terms of, you know, needing to make sure you stay within certain perceived norms uh, because you are at the mercy of somebody wanting to renew your contract. Um, the second issue is workload and time where, you know, particularly this year with the pandemic, with people having to at very short notice switch to online teaching, I think that a lot of people do feel extremely overworked. And the thing with decolonizing the curriculum or decolonizing research is it does take work. You have to educate yourself. You have to learn new things. You have to be able to talk to people. You have to think about things. And all of that takes time. And, you know, that's really hard because time is not something that anybody has in abundance at the moment. So I think, you know, those are the kinds of barriers that are there, but I think they're also barriers that can be surmountable in a long term and with a sort of joined up approach. I was going to say, I guess that's when sort of that mixture of top down and, and bottom up really sort of can be so effective because, you know, having that sort of top down support in the decolonizing process can allow academics to have that time to, you know, like you say, educate themselves and really sort of examine um, the process and things. No, I think that's a really important point because, yeah, like academics are under pressure and, you know, yeah. Um, and I guess as well, like decolonizing is sort of a combination of sort of theory and practice, isn't it? It's, it's you know, it's about having this sort of abstract, abstract idea of what sort of, you know, about coloniality and decoloniality, but then sort of mix that with sort of like, activism and sort of practical sort of approaches to it and I guess we sort of touched on it kind of before but I guess sort of in more depth sort of what do you think are some maybe practical approaches um or actions I guess as well that can be adopted sort of within the um the ongoing process I mean I think the first thing I'd say is that you know you don't have to start huge you can start by doing something really, really, really small, actually, whether it's like take the time out to read, you know, an article or a book or, you know, have a reading group with other people in your part of the university that might be interested or, you know, maybe make some changes to like one thing you're teaching to see what happens and to think about it. Um, you know, maybe have like one conversation with students, you know, are interested to hear about that. I don't think everybody needs to be starting, you know, by thinking about I'm going to radically change everything all at once. I mean, if that's what you want to do, that's great, I think. But, you know, small changes can be actually really impactful in different ways. Um, so to give one example, one thing I often think about in my discipline, so I'm in literary studies, is um, we're actually relatively good at keeping quite diverse reading lists. It's not incredibly difficult. And particularly, I'm in African literary studies. So, you know, you'd be hard pressed to meet someone teaching an African literature course that doesn't have a lot of say primary texts like novels and stories and things by black or you know other kind of um, historically racialized as minority group authors. Like that's, that's something we're all really good at because it's kind of like right there in the stuff that we're teaching where people are much less good as secondary sources. So if you look at the literary theory that people are teaching, that is often written by white, or at least Global North-based thinkers and critics. And so, you know, one thing you can do is think about, well, what, what lesson is that kind of sending to students? What message is it transmitting? Is it kind of tacitly supporting this idea that 
knowledge is in the north and creativity is in the south because that's a big problem so so you know one thing you can do is try to have a more balanced secondary reading list try to think about you know where are um, global south authors who are based in the global south that i can put on my reading list these sorts of things um so i think that you can kind of start in a very practical way with your own practice and self-reflection or thinking about you know why do i make the choices i make when i'm setting up a particular unit why do I make the assumptions I make about like this is valid knowledge or valid writing um, another thing is we can look at like our assessment practices like particularly again in my subject we tend to be very essay heavy well that's pretty problematic because the essay is one type of knowledge production and there's all these kinds of presumptions and assumptions around like a good essay um, presumptions and assumptions around what constitutes say analysis or like those sorts of things so we can look at all that and maybe like try to do something different what about like oh maybe I'll take this essay off and instead give students a creative option or give students like a presentation option to see if that changes things so we can start small but I think what's important is that we keep talking to each other because if everybody's making kind of localized changes to their practice and their praxis that can really add up and we can share knowledge and we can discuss readings and the intellectual underpinning. You know, it's hard to find the time, but it is important work to do. And I think, you know, particularly where an institution's willing to kind of put the resource behind and give people time and space, like you can do things quite immediately. No, I think that's really true because so I'm in I'm in space, the school space, and obviously they're doing like amazing work. Um and some sort of the other interviews that I've had with like people in in different disciplines, they cite the sort of this work of space, and I think that really shows yeah. how like across disciplines you can learn from each other, and it, it, it can be quite interdisciplinary. Um, I mean, I think it has to be right because again, if we're thinking about it from the standpoint of decolonial theory, the very kind of like streamlining of knowledge into discrete disciplines is an act of coloniality, right? Like that's a very specific way of ordering knowledge that is not universal and it is not inevitable. No, I, I think that's so true. I think that's so important. And I think, yeah, just you can always learn from each other. You can always learn from one another. And I think in the decolonizing process, like that's so important. Um, and I think you're right as well, what you're saying about, you know, the students and academics, making sure that's an equal process. And, you know, empowering students in that process. Um, I think that's really important. Um, I guess I sort of wanted to maybe conclude to see if you sort of had any um, sort of last thoughts or like last points about the process, maybe something that you think that we haven't sort of covered yet. Um, um, yeah, I mean, it's not really like a last point, but I guess it's just something that I think is important to say is that, you know, it's not going to be easy and it shouldn't be. Like if it was easy, it would probably already be done. I think there's always going to be barriers, you know, and those barriers may not be in our own university. It might be like the government we have. It might be, you know, there might be larger things at play. Um, we're all always going to make mistakes. We're all always in a process of learning. Like, I feel like the real danger is when you hit a stage where you think, well, I know it all now. I've, I've absolutely fixed myself 100% because what you're actually saying is I'm no longer willing to learn. Um, so I think, you know, for me, what it boils down to is just being able to listen, um, being able to challenge, being able to accept being challenged and being able to care. I think that's so important. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a really, 
a nice way to end and yeah great thanks so much Rona I'll yeah. enjoy the rest of your day and thanks for inviting me for this yeah thank you so much for coming to talk to me it's been so interesting and oh hey <laughs> thank you bye